Welcome to the OK School Me podcast. I'm Dr. Mako Fitzward, Director of the Social Transformation Lab at Arizona State University. In our final episode for the season, we explore what it means to work, study, and belong in a new American university. ASU describes the phrase the new American university as a reconceptualization of 21st century higher education. While the idea of making excellence in research and learning accessible to the widest student population is quite ambitious and admirable, the pursuit of these efforts are often controversial and sometimes includes hidden economic and political outcomes. In this episode, we will discuss all of this with Dr. Joyce McCall, Assistant Professor of Music, Learning, and Teaching in the School of Music, Dance, and Theater at ASU, and Dr. Adrian Dixon, Professor of Educational Leadership Studies and Executive Director of the Education and Civil Rights Initiative at the University of Kentucky. They help us unpack exactly who is creating this agenda and its many impacts on students, not only in Arizona, but around the world. Kyle McKinney will give us our learning moment. So let's begin our transformation for today and get this lesson started. Hello and welcome to the OK School Me podcast. I'm Dr. Mako Fitzward, Director of the Social Transformation Lab. And I'm Jamal Brooks-Hawkins, a fourth-year PhD student in Gender Studies in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University and a research assistant in the Social Transformation Lab. In this episode, we explore what it means to work, study, and belong in a new American university. To help us do that, we've invited scholars to unpack exactly who is creating and who belongs in the conceptual spaces being crafted by schools around the country. In speaking to my colleagues around the university and around the state, Discussions of organizing regarding tuition increases, RATA stipends increasing, unionizing, and fee waivers are all occurring. These movements look to reveal how the new American university model and the moniker of number one in innovation isn't always so innovative. We can't move closer to tuition-free school or recognize conditions that graduate student labor uh, produces. There is a culture that does not seem to see the value in interdisciplinary fields. However, many students and faculty are striving to demonstrate how interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity are essential in helping young people understand things like justice and other important topics relevant to our communities. Students aim to be as transgressive as possible and prove that the new American university is not just a corporate project, but a place for our academic pursuits. Students are in a constant fight to prove our value beyond our tuition dollars or labor that often feels exploitative. These activities that are happening in and around our communities demonstrate who we are and how we are committed to bettering society and achieving justice. Now, we're going to switch gears and talk to our guests for today, Dr. Adrian Dixon and Dr. Joyce McCall. Dr. Dixon is Professor of Educational Leadership Studies and the Executive Director of the Education and Civil Rights Initiative at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Joyce McCall is an Assistant Professor of Music Learning and Teaching in the School of Music, Dance, and Theater at Arizona State University. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. 
Recently, we had the pleasure of hearing you, Dr. Dixon, give a presentation on the political motivations behind the popularizing, or should I say, mischaracterizing of critical race theory, or CRT, by Republican political operatives. We know that the field of race studies is vast and that critical race theory is one of many theoretical currents. Why has this specific intellectual tradition been the target of political attacks? Yeah, I think um, one of the, uh, actually, I think Jamal asked the question. I think it's um, um, it's low-hanging fruit. I just think it's easy um, to attack critical race theory as opposed to, um, well, you could, they, I mean, they don't like critical whiteness studies, um, uh, but because race is in the title and they're particularly animated um, against uh racial equity, that CRT is just, um, I think, easier to um, make a boogeyman, um, and that anything that is related to um, racial equity and social justice has been kind of subsumed under CRT, and so it's just uh, it's, it's, it's laziness, and I think it was just easy. Mm-hmm. And can I add that there is a to, to your point about the boogeyman, which I love that idea, putting a face to the fear-mongering tactic, right? That there is this desire to encourage people to fear information, to fear knowledge, and to fear an understanding and recognition of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And I think also as we – I think we kind of talked about this when I did my talk, um, that it's kind of humanized the, um, you know, Bell Hooks talks about eating the other. And so the other now may may usurp the kind of traditional power structure. And so we have to make the other a demon, right? They're evil. Um, and they're going to um, take your... Um, take your rights away, they're going to take your children away. Um, and so, um, uh, I, yeah, I, I think it was. it's just an easier shorthand. And it's not different from um, the kind of negrophobia that we saw, you know, at the turn of the century um, when um, the, uh, I'm blanking on the movie now, um, the first birth of, a nation. birth of a Nation, that so that it's the same kind of, you know, um, negrophobia um, and it's just repackaged because more of us are um, have an intellectual capacity that we can engage it's not that we didn't have black intellectuals obviously but there are just the volume of us um, who are participating um, in kind of popular um, uh, public intellectualism and um, the kind of academic marketplace um, our ideas are Um, more readily accessible to a broader public in ways that they weren't when Du Bois and Anna Julia Cooper and Carter G. Woodson. And so I I think it's it's, um, just a recasting of um, kind of early 20th century um, negrophobia. Especially because one of the things you highlight is the erasure Mm -hmm. of race, right? Um, And how bringing... Even naming race in something like classical music, um, because Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, they don't really have race, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're not 
and so I think yeah. that, that absolutely articulates like the diversity within the field of race studies of how to really think through and think about yeah. race. And it's not just this very specifically like, oh, we're now talking about black music. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Well, and I would add too that, you know, part of what I hear you talk about is the reality that there is a demographic deficit of Absolutely. people of color in Absolutely. higher education oh, yeah. of studying race yeah. and 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 being placed in positions to teach and study yep. about race and racial difference sure. across racial groups. Yes. So that's typically, you know, <clears throat> often we talk about that as the diversity gap. Yep. That we need to have more people of color in higher education who are trained to teach these things. Yeah. That speaks to your point about the ways in which white scholars who study race study it oftentimes from the vantage point of their own racial, Absolutely. social location. Absolutely. But then there's also the point about the diversity of race scholarship that across disciplines, so, yeah. you know, the way that sociologists take up race, the way that historians take up race, the way right. that um, engineers take mm. up racial equity mm-hmm. in their field, mm-hmm. right, that all of the disciplines are engaging in some Absolutely. conversation and intellectual pursuit around race and difference. But I, yeah. You know, I I think about that, and I, I think you're right. I think, though, the absence of a discussion of race, as Toni Morrison would say, kind of the absent presence, is that there always has been a racial project, right, mm-hmm. um, in education when we render people's voices, experiences, perspectives, uh, and we we render them as if they don't exist, they're invisible. Mm. It is, you know, it is a racial, it is a racial project. And it's a kind of sanitizing and cleansing, a racial cleansing project, right? To just act as if people don't um, exist, they're just here. Mm. Um, When we think about education in particular, um, and I'm talking about K-12, kind of how we have normed who is smart, um, what counts as rigor, what's important knowledge, um, that exists, those standards, the quote-unquote standards exist because we have said um, what per, what certain groups who are black in particular, um, you don't really have anything that would be a standard um, that is worthy of us knowing um, or pursuing that particular knowledge, except in these very narrow ways. So um, we may learn about spirituals, but that's going to be in February. Yes. We may learn about um, Martin Luther King, but those it's very, um, ba- it's, you know, there are boundaries set around that knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's a particular mm-hmm. set of knowledge that we are going to select um, and that'll be the sum total of what we can know. And it might, it's not even going to be rigorous. It's just, you know, here's a contribution. And then everything else is, you know, we're going to, you know, quote unquote, be normal. So it has always yeah. been a racial project. I think what's exciting about the the scholarship that that people of color have contributed to this conversation is that it's a very explicit conversation about white supremacy. And um, and white supremacy and the kind of hierarchies of knowledge and making that kind of making that more um, uh, accessible and plain to even have the language to say that, mm. um, I think, is the kind of exciting contribution that we've made. And I even, you know, I'm just as we're talking, I'm like, why do I need to name my work as race work? You know, how can we kind of flip the script and recapture that I do, you know, I look at education. You know, why do I have to bracket it as critical race theory? It, and so in what 
to what extent do we participate in the kind mm -hmm. of continued marginalization of our own knowledge? I don't know. So you use the phrase white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I know that for many, that word is triggering. Yeah. Depending on, you know, your generation, your context, yeah. it has a lot of meaning. Yeah. And for those of us who study race as an intellectual yeah. um, project, as a, as a racial project, yeah. Yeah. it also has a very specific, specific. understanding mm -hmm. that goes far beyond um, a sort of alt right or um, right wing yeah. organized movement. Yeah. So can you speak yeah. a little bit about that broader right. definition? Yeah. So I'm actually writing a book on this with a colleague. And I'll say um, we wanted to name the book Beyond Hoods and Nooses. Um, but the publisher thought it was too polarizing. <laughs> but what we're trying to argue is this very point yeah. that White supremacy exists beyond just the kind of burning crosses, people who wear hoods, hanging nooses, that it is a it is an ideology that is so deeply entrenched. Um, and we're 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 talking specifically about um, education, P20, um, that it you know, that again, we, it it frames who gets to be gifted, who's worthy of certain kinds of. Uh, curricula, who is worthy of access, has worthy to gain access to particular institutions, um, both as a learner and a teacher, that that all of that is a reflection of the kind of deeply held beliefs that are white supremacists that 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 many of us buy into, right? When we start talking about rigor, if you've ever participated on an admissions process or a hiring committee, um, Carol Lee is a scholar who just retired from Northwestern, and she talks about kind of, again, how we're all kind of implicated in this no these notions of rigor that, um, that elevate um, deeply held beliefs about smartness that are tied to... Um, our history of white supremacy, where, you know, literally that, that, that certain populations and black people have always been on the bottom, so it is very anti-black at its genesis, that we just didn't have the capacity to know. We, we didn't have the capacity to know. And for those of us who knew, they were completely exceptional because the general population just, you can't know this stuff. You, did, you can't access it because you aren't capable um, and it's inherent in the in in who you are as a quote unquote people, um, and so that's that's what we're trying to wrestle with is how does this show up, both historically and even in our contemporary conversations about um, education and in our policies. How does this show up over and over again? And so we're not really doing a genealogy of white supremacy, but trying to kind of explicate how this ideology has just become kind of. Secondhand, it's normalized. It's our default, um, and um, and to kind of make that uh, again, make that plain for for our readers. Actually, kind of going on that trajectory because we do have a question, um, Dr. McCall. Your your work explores the intersections of race, racism, and culture, um, and impact uh, and how it impacts uh, educational equity in music education in the U.S. Can you speak to some of the ways that educators at uni at the university level are working with uh, P through 12 uh, schools and community-based programs to bring music education to young people, mm -hmm. especially since the resources for these programs are limited? Mm. Well, there's some some of my colleagues are working in ways to partner. Um, that's some of the ways they're trying to create 
what we call access points. Because um, as we know, in K through 12, if you wanted to, let's say if you decided, oh, seventh grade, I want to join band, you can't because there are prerequisites that you had to have. And it, it sure is not uh, an option for high school as well as college. So what I'm finding, for instance, in Chicago, there's a school called Merit School, and it targets um, racially, uh, systemically oppressed folks in Chicago. And if we talk about CPS, it's majority African-American and Latinx Chicago public schools. And there, they only start, yeah, they start school music in the ninth grade. But the suburbs, as early as the fourth grade. So think about that. If a kid wanted to pursue a music degree, there's no race. The race is done when they show up. So the Mary School is using their resources in partnerships with local music educators to create a space where those students in CPS Chicago Public Schools, it's an after-school program. So they come and they get tutoring, they get um, applied studies. It's almost within the context of a mini university, but it's much more specialized and nuanced. Um, And so what we found when I was at the University of Illinois prior to Arizona State we found that the merit school and spaces like that were actually uh, impacting and minimizing that gap of information. Um, but here's the thing. You have the universities, for instance, at the University of Illinois, they recalibrate the cumulative GPA. So what that, what that is, they remove the extracurricular activity, those grades. You can't win. So the students begin to master. Well, I don't want to say master, but they begin to um, really uh, gain additional knowledge into the knowledge that they already knew and begin to win these auditions. Well, then music students have at least two entry points they have to negotiate, not just admissions. And so admissions, there's another. It's like we, 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 we. Figure out how to get around this thing. And then they say, oh, no, no, no. So I think some people are creating partnerships and finding additional spaces. I know down in New Orleans, there's The Roots, which is a nonprofit group. And that is open to a wealth of students, not just middle school, but you see little like. But can I say something about that? Because one of and I was thinking about Chicago, too, that the chartering the kind of the influence of neoliberal ideology in public schools is that um, there are certain knowledges that our kids just won't have access to because it's quote unquote not important. What's more important is that they, um, that they, obviously we want them to read, but there's an over emphasis on reading and math and such that they're not Mm well-rounded. So um, in, in places that have been um, overrun by charter schools, increasingly the arts Mm-hmm. Um, and there's as if kids don't have an aesthetic, right? Our kids don't have an aesthetic that's kind of stripped from schools. And so in a place like New Orleans, the insanity is that you have to have now a third party institution provide um, uh, 
music instruction that is optional. It's not in the schools anymore. So yeah. my kids went to school. We had an we had an art teacher in res, a real artist who was a painter was in the school. There wasn't yeah. an add-on. Yeah, yeah. We had real practicing musicians who taught music, who did choral. And now um, kind of after we're almost 20 years after Katrina, they can go to an after school program, perhaps maybe if mm. they, you know, get access. Yeah. Yeah. And and so what do we lose as, you know, as a people when we don't, um, when, when, and I mean a people broadly, not, not black people, but that we don't invest in the arts for all of our students, mm. that it's seen as yeah. optional. Um, and where do they, you know, where does that creativity and that that um, using the arts as a mechanism for movement building, for protest, for critique, um, they're 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 doing it. They're doing it on their own. But school, I say, is no longer kind of an official space, space where yeah. you can explore an, an artistic side. So, yeah. well, and just real quick, I think you just wonderfully articulated the difference between information and knowledge, mm -hmm. right? So information, we live in a time in which information is readily available, mm -hmm. but knowledge, the yeah. critical the critical unpacking of yeah. thought of that information, how to synthesize it um, in a myriad of ways yeah. is really important. Yeah. And school has become very, for, for kids of color um, who live in poverty or who are not wealthy school is very transactional and very functional mm. um and um mm. i am i'm bothered when we hear you know the, this overrunning of um steam steam or stem because steam is relatively new i don't even know that we integrate steam very well but everybody doesn't need to be an engineer i was a i actually have a degree in music theory and composition and i would have hated school if i had been forced to be a science, you know, do science all day long. It mm -hmm. might have been fun, but, you know, I don't know. Mm. Um, but I know that for me, music was my um, was my way of making sense of the world. I'm an introvert, so I would go in my room and play my flute. My dad would complain because I wouldn't be in the room, but I would just play flute all day in my room. It took to, so much so that I actually didn't want to be a performer because I don't like attention. I just like playing my mm. flute. Yeah. So... I say that I think that that is kind of um, stripped from the curriculum and that it's only that for kids of color, education becomes only the means to get a job. And then there are set sort of kinds of jobs that they should aspire to. But pragmatically, what happens in New Orleans, a lot of our kids mm. go into the service industry mm. because you have to test into certain specialized schools. And so, you know, again, education is very functional and transactional. And the knowledge piece is not, we don't think of it in, in a comprehensive way. It's you will learn this, you need to know this, mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. That's very real in music. Like, in terms of the, the transformative, supposedly the transformative work that she, supposed to be happening in music education it's not um we have folks who are playing dress up with like culturally relevant pedagogy or culturally relevant and culturally responsive teaching in ways that is actually a hindrance and creates more trauma mm -hmm. and so you have folks playing dress up many it's of our white performative mm -hmm. many of our white colleagues um for instance there's um and I'll say it, that was a graduate from Arizona State University who took the Whip and the Nene video and put it within a four, 
two-part choral setting, classical music. And while people would say, oh, that's just hip hop, but there are so many tropes of that that are happening every day in and out of our, our music education programs, the programs that would usually produce teachers who would move out into um, spaces that are becoming more and more culturally, racially, ethnically diverse, but the teachers are still white and culturally white. Yeah. yeah. And so the idea that we can bring the nene to the suburbs right. is essentially the boundary of black contribution to yeah. the arts, mm-hmm. is yeah. that, to yeah. your point, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dixon, Everything is becoming, in education, mm-hmm. everything is becoming transactional, yeah. Yeah. and all knowledge is information. Yeah. And teachers have been turned into yeah. um, distribu- distributors of information okay. as opposed to cultivators of knowledge. Yeah. knowledge. Right. And that is, I think, a good segue yeah. <laughs> into our next question. And this really has to do with the role of universities yeah. in helping to... Uh, mitigate mm-hmm. some of that, uh, some of those currents, yeah. and the ways that universities are really moving to reimagine their yeah. role yeah. in the 21st century, yeah. uh, gl- the 21st century global economy, yeah. Yeah. right? And so, you know, moving towards this commitment to expand educational opportunities for more people, while also meeting the research and development needs of both industry and government. Right. All of this with the larger goal of having more meaningful social impact. So this model, otherwise known as the new American university, um, it is a model that is gaining traction. Mm -hmm. Right. That universities are are seeing themselves uh, in greater part and have always been in great partnership with industry and with government to produce students who will contribute to the global workforce, Mm -hmm. right? What are some of the benefits and the pitfalls of this new model, especially as we talk about the ways in which uh, P through 12 education has become more transactional and information-based? I worry about how it drives curriculum and drives, again, um, it narrows what we can know. And this has always, you know, been a threat. Um, it's always been a threat for, um, in P-12, particularly, again, for communities, for kids who attended schools. They weren't at private schools. They weren't wealthy. Um, so we, you know, schools, the common school was one designed to make people fit and, you know, fit into society, be quote-unquote good citizens, and also learn how to be workers. So if we think about time tests, um, testing, um, standardized tests, doing well on standard, all of that was, you know, to, to learn how to be um, a good employee. And um, and so we've kind of maintained that. And sadly, you know, uh, it, well, on one hand, universities used to be above that, right, because they were elite. And they didn't have the common person. It was, you know, white men for the most part. Then women, white women were able to kind of infiltrate. Um, so universities were above the kind of fray because public schools were for the commoner. Um, and now these ideas about um, education being transactional and functional have made their way to the university. Um, and I think I think there's a lot. I, I, I don't study higher ed, so I, I can't talk about the kind of when this shift happened. But I do think that as universities um, 
funding streams shift um, and leadership starts to see universities as um, businesses as opposed to places of intellectual engagement where we can think about ideas, um, that, that the notion that we're producing workers becomes, again, the kind of um, common sense. Uh, when I was an assistant professor, one of my school directors talked about our students as customers, and my colleagues like, railed against that. Um, and now, not so much. You know, people will co-opt the language of business that we're serving. You know, we need to um, think about, um, we, more and more you're thinking about um, using, um, what is it, um, evaluations um, and making decisions about who can teach what course based on their evaluations. Um, if we want, you know, for required courses, are we going to have this person teach it because we want to make sure that we draw students? We don't. So um, I think the business language is, again, that ideology is becoming kind of secondhand. And I worry about it um, because I think that um, there will be I think there'll be programs that are obsolete. We see that more and more in the humanities, um, because um, uh, why would you? Why would one need to, you know, read the classics if they're going to go work for IBM or if they're going to go? Do people even work for IBM anymore? <laughs> they go work for Google. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm dating myself. And they go work for Google or big tech. Big, big tech, tech, right? Big tech. Um, so I do. I, I worry about it. I don't know that it's a good idea. Um, I understand, you know, diverse, you know, streams of revenue, but I think we're kind of. And P twelve has always been concerned about this. Whenever they talk about schools, this has been forever and a day. Um, businesses, they'll look at, um, they'll survey businesses, and businesses will say, "We need workers who can do thus and so," and it falls on K twelve um, immediately, and so kids will. Um, need to work in, um, they have to learn how to um, write in a certain way that's very efficient. And so teachers don't think about nuance anymore because we need someone who can just be a good communicator. But what does good communicator mean? It's one who's devoid of analysis. Mm -hmm. You just state the facts. Um, and so it's always been kind of influenced by industry, I think, and it, I'm worried and I'm, I'm not happy about it. Right. I mean, I've, you know, recently was in, in, in a space where, you know, someone asked, well, what exactly are you meant to do with a degree in something like African-American studies? Or what exactly does a women's studies degree yield for yeah. a student in yeah. the workforce? Um, and of course, the question that I always like to go back to is, is the university only meant to serve industry? Yeah. Are we only meant to produce right. workers? Right. Right. You know, I think most faculty in the university, regardless of whether you're at a state university or a private university, will say to you that our responsibility is to cultivate next generation thinkers, thinkers next yeah. generation learners, people who can move into society and ask the, the critical questions yeah. that will take our society to the next yeah. level, right? Yeah. Because what we know about innovation is that there's a fine line between art and innovation. Yeah. And that most innovators in industry 
are actually artists, artists. at yeah. heart, mm-hmm. right? So when we talk about business, oftentimes we're talking about it in the zero-sum game, but, but really we're also talking about people who are creatives, mm-hmm. who are who are testing and trying and failing and yeah. testing, but they have the privilege yeah. to test and try and yeah. fail yeah. because yeah. of who they are, where they went to yeah. school, and what their capabilities are. And at a state university, our hope is that our students will also have the privilege to be able to test and try and fail and fail again and test and try so that they, too, can be the next generation innovators. But if we don't create the conditions at all educational levels for every student to fail, then what is our contribution to society? So I um, taught at my. I started my career at NC State, um, which is a um, a techie school. I mean, the tech at NC State is just amazing, um, but they're not Duke and they're not UNC, and they actually UNC Chapel Hill, and they actually live in the shadows of the school, and so they call themselves the Every Man's University because many of their students, um, they'll say, you know, they were tobacco farmers, except North Carolina, tobacco is king. So don't play with me about these being working class people. You know, they're they're wealthy, but they don't have an identity of being wealthy, but they are. Um, but um, there was this um, movement to, um, parents were upset that they were paying tuition for longer than four years. And they wanted their kids to get out in four years. And what they were going to do was to um, make advisors. And so they were going to hold advisors accountable for their child graduating in four years. And this was an idea of moving through the legislature. And all faculty had to be advisors. What do I have to do with your child finishing in four years? Like, why am I responsible for that? Because it became, it was this functional, I need them to, it's it's a, it's financial. I don't want to pay tuition for them to go and they taking a woman's studies course. Or they're going and taking art and they're doing this. I need them to finish. It costs too much money and they need to be able to get out and get a job. And that was in, that was in 2002. And that ideology, you know, and I would tell my colleagues, we need to be careful about this. This is scary if it if it spreads that um, we have to whittle down knowledge has to be bounded by a particular amount of time and you are responsible not the child you're responsible because Jamal didn't finish in four years and I had to pay a fifth semester or um, you know and so again it's this kind of transactional um, this notion that you know you go to school you get what you got to get and then you get out Something similar happened here, though, Um, back when I was a doctoral student around 2000, maybe 2012, 2013, Arizona legislature uh, moved to force institutions to whittle down the Mm -hmm. credit hours because it was too much and it was too expensive. And so what happened in music learning and teaching and went to 120 credit hours, and the students get out in four years. But the issue is, is that when they go out into the world, they they are not really ready. Um, and not just in terms of music, right? But also in terms of being able to connect and restore and repair. And that's not a part of the new university sort mm-hmm. of mantra, if we were to be honest. It's more about exploitation and extraction. What can we get from our communities that we say we're serving, but we're getting tenure, we're getting research and scholarship, we're publishing, but what are we giving back 
and most folks haven't haven't been able to respond to that question that I asked. It's so funny. I was scrolling through Twitter, um, <laughs> and right, um, and one of the people that I follow in this part of like academic Twitter um, yeah. is very much. Um, articulating the different ways in which to engage AI, mm-hmm. right? Um, and one of the posts uh, and threads was around the new, I can't remember if it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's an AI, I can't remember if it's from Microsoft or mm-hmm. Bang or whomever, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the thread was about how they were hiring prompt writers. See? a prompt writer mm-hmm. for this AI, and they made sure to um, post the salary range, which was in between two hundred and fifty and dollars and $330,000. About to go be a post writer for G-Chat. Right. Well, I mean, but, that, <laughs> but that's just it. Like, right, all of a sudden, yeah. it's like, okay, I don't need to understand about justice Nothing. or knowledge or mm-hmm. the different ways we, we, we move through the world. What I need to understand is how to write a prompt for AI, right? Which then goes back to the STEM uh, piece. So you need to know how to write code. You need to know how to uh, do all of these other things and not actually have a conversation yeah. with, with, with people, right? Yeah. Um, because it is mm-hmm. not about the whole the person. Yeah. It's, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's about yeah. how do I get that yeah. job? Right. Yeah. It was um, Dr. Brooke Coley who, who talked about, you know how you put your hands underneath the um, faucet yeah. right. and there's that sensor? I didn't know this, but she said that the folks who created that didn't think about us in terms of different skin uh, melanin. And so when people, you know, folks, uh, BIPOC folk would go and wash their hands, it wouldn't come on. And so it made me think about the fact that all you got to do is press buttons and not have these this this critical consciousness going on, you're not responsible or for that. Or a diverse set of experiences right. with different people right. and ways to think across yeah. and speak across communities. Yeah. yeah. And that's the place yeah. of the university, that yeah. the university yes. is meant to be an yeah. incubator yeah. where people come from different backgrounds with different life experiences and to have experiences with people who are different from them and learn how right. to engage right. in civil right. dialogue, discourse, and exchange. That is what the university is meant to be. We are not just meant to produce the next service workers. Yeah. We are meant to cultivate people's um, curiosity about yeah. the world. Yeah. And oftentimes that that's that's seen as being from a place of privilege. Yeah. But why not yeah. pass on that privilege to the most people that you can? Mm-hmm. Right? How do you diffuse the privilege yeah. of right. difference and diversity right. and experience and make that accessible to everyone? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you have people who are thoughtful and critical, they're not going to you know, clock in at 8 o'clock, sit at their desk, go eat at noon, come back to their desk. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, no, we can think about doing work differently. I don't need you to think about work. I need doing it differently, or I need you to get this done. You know, um, so I, and, and we trained, we literally, in in, in urban schools, um, and I say urban schools where, where you know, where, where kids of color um, predominate, they are um, they are conditioned, they are institutionalized. So my research in New Orleans, I, I, I um, 
these young high school students, there's a, a bookstore, a black woman-owned bookstore called the Community Book Center um, in mm. New Orleans um, that I frequent. So I was there, and um, folks know that my research is on New Orleans. And so this high school kid came in. He said, you a doctor? Where you work, do your, do your, students, do your students have to um, walk on a line in the hallway, and do you tell them where to go? Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely not. That was my high school where I taught in Houston. They had to put their feet on footprints and hold their hands up and get wanded. Then go into a room, get searched. When they're in the cafeteria, there's a line that their right right foot had to stay on. Mm -hmm. High school. Yep. And I was like, "Mm -mm." I said, if you don't know how to manage your own time, and I said, it's going to, you know, you got to get. To, to class on your own. I'm not going to, I don't walk my students to class. Yeah. You don't, they keep, and they were literally telling these children and they're like 10, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade that this is how you, you need to be able to do this so you can go to college. Absolutely not. All that stuff gets thrown away when you go to college. Yeah. And one of the things we're finding in New Orleans is that kids were leaving after their freshman year of college because they just, they had been conditioned. It's like being a prisoner. And the kids would call their schools. So they call, most of the high school would describe their schools as Little Angola. And if you know anything about the prison system mm-hmm. in New Orleans, mm-hmm. one of the largest prisons in the world uh, where black people are housed is Angola Prison, named after the country of Angola, ironically. But um, they called their high schools Little Angola. They just were conditioned to wow. follow directions and they didn't know how to think freely. You know, they were institutionalized, so school became the institution. Outside of school, they were different, but once they came in those doors, it was so, you know, sad to just watch our children and, and to be constantly, you know, they weren't physically beaten, but if you get demerits, if you're put out of class constantly, it's like, you know, your your spirit is just broken. And, and what you're talking about, these are forms of state-sanctioned surveillance, yes. social control. Yes. That leads Absolutely. to that leads down a road that takes us back yep. to a time when yep. I don't think most Americans Absolutely. would like to see us right, go right, back right, to. Right. Even though there's this narrative in the culture of, you know, going back to a, a time of greatness, right. for most Americans, those times never were existed. never great. Never Even existed. if they don't have a consciousness that they weren't great, right. they were not great. Right. 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 Yeah. right. And I think that speaks to our current political climate. Yeah. And so how does the current political climate uh, where state legislators are moving to limit access Mm -hmm. to knowledge and historical texts hinder higher ed's ability to prepare students to enter a globalized, diverse workforce? Um, And to be, given our critique of the workforce, to enter a global world yeah. where they can think and see and imagine themselves as global citizens. Yeah, I, you know, it's why I was the very first time I ever traveled out of the country, and I was fortunate to go to London. I sat next to a white Brit, and um, this was when um, the second Bush was president, and he, we just started chatting, and he was like, um, "So you're president." I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, I'm just railing. He was like, oh, I'm so relieved because he was like most Americans, his perception was that most Americans were happy about mm-hmm. Bush. And I said, well, I, I don't actually reflect, quote unquote, most Americans that you would see on 
mm. television. Um, and I said, it's, I'm not, I, you know, I obviously I can't speak for all black people. I said, but we do have a critique. Um, and, and he was like, it's just so relief. It's such a relief to be able to have a conversation about how terrible this guy is and the war and blah, blah, blah. Um, so we, you know, how can you engage with the world to your question? If there isn't a space in this and what we, you know, I was a social studies teacher. So what I, when I worked with social studies teachers pre-service um, and in-service is that school should be the pa- place where kids get to learn how to engage in healthy dialogue and discourse and debate yeah. and talk about big ideas and um, what's happening in the world and form their own opinions, but be able to articulate a clear thought about what's happening because they have them. And but but we've we've made school a place where it's not safe to have it. And I think that's the unfortunate piece that then ultimately they come to the university and they don't know how to have a thought um, or to articulate. They do not have a thought. They don't know how to articulate a thought. Um, And we are actually the kids who have gone through. So some of the 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 problems with charter schools and ed reform is that the curriculum has been so narrowed um, and so prescribed that young people come and they they need a rubric for every single thing um, and they need a model of uh, an example of well what does this look like well you tell me you know like you tell me what you think about this well I I'd, I'd like to see a model first or a sample can you give me a sample mm. I refuse to do yeah. it. Um, and so I think that's the danger is when we start, again, sanitizing the curriculum, but also telling people you can't. I mean, I'm just stunned by that you can't know this. Like, what? Are you really? You can't know this? I can't know it. I can't read it. Yeah. I can't say the words. Like, what is it's It's my I. I can't even wrap my my mind around it. I have a student who um, was at the University of Florida, actually, and um, I call her a refugee because she taught a course that she taught her whole time. She left in her fifth year. She was the next year she was going to go up for tenure, but she left because a student um, filed a complaint about her teaching CRT. She had taught this course successfully every year for five years. And now all of a sudden, um, last year, she was, you know, she was under threat of losing her job. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you know, I was like, oh, we got to get her out of here. Mm-hmm. So we're all, you know, do, 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 you know, getting all on the, you know, yeah. trying to find her job. And, and she landed somewhere. Thank mm-hmm. God she was able to leave. But it's, um, it. I think, I and I, I've had, an, I've said this in interviews before, I think we should all be terrified that, our thoughts are being restricted. Like our thoughts are being restricted because some places are now looking at faculty scholarship. Yeah. In Florida, there and uh, I have a student in Texas. Texas is threatening to do the same thing that they are now going to look at your scholarship. Are you kidding me? Mm. It's yeah. stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's stunning. A faculty member in gosh, somewhere near Miami. He had been teaching uh a course on race for 10 years and they just gave him his letter saying that they will not renew his contract. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's real. Um, I know one of the things that we're doing, I'm working with uh, Evan Tobias in, in our department and it's, it's sad because we have to figure out how to fly under the radar. So it reminds me of Jarvis Giving's Mm -hmm. book called um, Future Future to Pedagogy. 
how the ways in which education and knowledge building and minding knowledge took place in the shadows. And so it feels like we are being pushed to to the shadows. It's it's so eerie and ominous. I kind of think that's where we're advantaged as people who are, you know, who, who are marginalized is that you learn how to kind of flip the script and navigate dangerous spaces. Um, and so to talk about, to, again, this un, uh, unspeakable things unspoken, that it, it's, it, it's unfortunate that you have to do that, and I don't advocate it, but I think that it's not, it's that subversion um, isn't difficult if you are, and unfortunately, I, I mean, I grew up, in a you know in a marginalized space, be living on the margins constantly, and so, um, so I, I'm not worried necessarily about how I'll adjust, but I I resent that we have to think in ways of you know mm-hmm. how can you be mm-hmm. subversive, and I wish that um, we had more allies. I uh, and I think I talked about this when I did my talk before mm-hmm. that um, that we 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 in the university don't do a good enough job, I think, of organizing on the ground such that we have allies mm-hmm. and um, that people would care about the the implications of this 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 fascism that that, you know, you know. And of course, what we know is that fascism is not good for business. Right. <laughs> so at right. the end of the day, yes. the pendulum we expect to swing back okay. in order to adhere to the demands of this global marketplace yeah. Yeah. that requires yeah. us all to engage with a level of um with a level of critique, but yeah. also to be able to engage full stop. Yeah. And if we can't engage, that will set our society back in ways that I don't think our generation or even past generations really knows what it, it feels, feels like, like yeah. to not be number one. Yeah. But yeah. we, we may that. be feeling yeah. that I, I, yeah, I sooner rather that. than yeah. later. Well, yeah. and one of the things, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that can happen at the university is things like principled critique, where it's like you can critique the thing that is providing you uh, your degree. You can critique, um, because critique and criticism doesn't necessarily mean that you are against it or for it, exactly. right? Um, it, it is it is a way to unpack uh, and so, yeah, it just it seems like there's always this, well, it's either a pat on the head um, or I can always tell uh, I can always tell the first years in my classes because they will raise their hand to go to the bathroom. Oh, yes. Right. Yes. And how th- but then yes. how that everyday function yeah. spirals into this more globalized yeah, right. uh, understanding of what I am yeah. meant to do in society. But you know what I think about, uh, so Illinois has a huge, they really courted um, international students um, as a way, so as the state pulled back their funding for the University of Illinois, which is a flagship. So in the state of Illinois, even though University of Chicago and Northwestern are there, everyone you know, wants to get a degree from the University of Illinois because it's the University of Illinois. Um, so as the state pulled back, and in fact, the state owed the University of Illinois, I think when I got there in 2011, they owed them, it was something like, I think almost a billion dollars. 
Um, and so the university had to adjust. It was like, we're not getting that money from them. Uh, so they went after international students. And that's a huge stream of revenue that, um, and Illinois is now a blue state, so they have a, uh, you know, a, a Democratic governor who's very committed to, and, and has articulated, he's a billionaire, so he doesn't really, you know, he has some protection. Um, so he's been on record as saying, we're going to commit to diversity and equity. He's open job. One of my friends works in that office. And so he's kind of gone full out on this. But, um, but the university can't afford to not fight back and push back on DEI efforts because it's, they get a lot of money from international students. And not just, I mean, they're, there's a, they're, they, they have um, uh, brought in a number of Asian students from around the kind of Asian diaspora, if you will, but, um, but African students uh, across, the, um, across the continent, um, Indian students because the um, East, East, Southeast Asian students, because the supercomputer is there. So the internet started at the University of Illinois um, and um, under a contract with the D Department of Defense. And so they need to be able to attract, and I would imagine as more and more universities recognize that the inter in international tuition dollars are a, uh, a a hefty revenue stream. They will employ some sort of lobby to you know to to push back on this narrowing of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. it, and it's from a CRT perspective, we would call it interest convergence. That it's not necessarily a viable strategy yeah. all the time, um, and that people of color don't employ that. But but that power structures do. Like oh, I need you. Okay, I'm aligned. Okay, let's 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 work this out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, this was a very rich conversation, and I just want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you all. You thank have you definitely us. schooled us all. Yes, okay. <laughs> School me. Okay. okay. Thank you. No, thank you all for the yeah, opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you. I'd like to take a brief moment to thank this episode's participants, Dr. Adrian Dixon and Dr. Joyce McCall, as well as our sponsor, Arizona PBS, for making this podcast possible. Throughout this episode, we have touched upon topics that seem to move across academic disciplines and different fields of thought, education, politics, social justice, history, and even music. When we think of the new American University, it is beneficial to think within an interdisciplinary lens to grasp the complexity of the subject. For those of you who joined us for our first episode, I provided a metaphor using colors to explain what interdisciplinary is. But to put it simply, interdisciplinary means relating to more than one branch of knowledge. It's the way that we look at a social problem, a set of social relations and or phenomena using multiple disciplinary perspectives. By thinking this way, we can create new possibilities for change, problem solving, and ways to address contemporary social issues from multiple perspectives. At this point, I would usually go into interdisciplinary examples based on the topics discussed in today's episode. This time, I would like to take a different approach. I'm going to revisit some of the topics and frameworks that were utilized in previous episodes to expand, provide new examples, and connect to the new American University. ASU describes these ideas as a desired aspiration of the university to become a comprehensive knowledge enterprise dedicated to the simultaneous pursuit of excellence, broad access to quality education, and meaningful societal impact. In other words, ASU is aiming to better serve its community by expanding it in inclusive and meaningful ways. So without further ado, let's revisit episode one. If you may recall from our first episode, we spoke about the many facets of social transformation and showed how video games could be used as a medium in which we can engage with learning. Utilizing that same framework, 
I like to refer to my own essay titled Mario Kart, a unique tool for understanding privilege, intersectionality, and equitable practices, which I completed for a graduate seminar course. The essay includes themes discussed by our guests and the New American University. In my essay, I combine the lens of critical perspectives on race studies with Mario Kart in an attempt to explain the concepts mentioned in the title in a more simplified way. For example, for any listeners who have played Mario Kart, I use the star item to represent privilege, the bullet bill item to represent equitable practice, and I related the notion of intersectionality with the complexity of Mario Kart maps. By utilizing a video game as a mapping tool, I was able to create a means of learning that is more engaging, relatable, and fun. Since part of the new American University model is to adopt leading edge technology platforms to pursue knowledge in unprecedented ways, this is a perfect way to accomplish this. In episode two, we explored politicizing education, where we used tech fabric hybrids called e-textiles to show the intersections of education, technology, and politics. This time, I would like to take a different approach to the topic of politicizing education by talking about something called heteronormativity. According to Lauren Berlant and Michael Warner's 1998 article, Sex and Public, both sociocultural theorists and authors place attention on the diverse forces of heterosexuality that are embedded into our society through what they call heteronormativity. This force is produced in almost every aspect of the forms and arrangements of social life, including education, and operates in institutions, structures of understanding, and practical orientations that make heterosexuality seem not only coherent, that is organized as sexuality, but also privileged. For a lot of people, ideas such as these are unheard of, but that is part of the point. Heteronormativity creates a common sense-like mentality that centralizes and even naturalizes qualities of heterosexuality in a way that makes it seem unnoticeable. In education, schools and teachers play a key role in intentionally and unintentionally forming heteronormative environments for younger students. This is highlighted in Heidi Ganson's research, whose work focuses on sociology of education, social inequalities, gender and sexuality, children and youth, race, and qualitative methods. In a 10-month observation of nine preschool classrooms, she noticed that children were reproducing the gender sexual socialization received by peers and teachers. A small example is when teachers would often encourage opposite genders to kiss and hug through romantic couplings by imposing terms like crushes, boyfriend and girlfriend, and wife and husband, but either ignoring those same interactions or framing them as just as friends when done with children of the same sex. One can only imagine how impactful these dynamics are when they are reinforced and replicated throughout our lives. Utilizing that same framework to observe the political climate in Arizona today, we can find two relevant examples. According to the Human Rights Campaign, SB 1001 would make it illegal for teachers and other school personnel to respect the pronouns of a trans or non-binary student without written parental permission. Well, SB 1005, quote, leaves schools open to threat of litigation for providing supportive and affirming spaces for LGBTQ students. In this way, we can see how heteronormativity goes untouched, while motions for non-heteronormative inclusivity become targets of oppression. Now, I know that was a lot, but that is why activism is so important, so that we can resist actions that would effectively restrict and oppress the wonderfully diverse people that we are, which leads us into our last topic. In episodes three and four, we engage with LGBTQIA activism in ways that art is transformative. For this last episode, I'm going to combine these two topics to provide a few local examples where art is being utilized as a means for transformation and indirect activism. At the University of Arizona, the Racial Justice Studio incorporates all artistic disciplines in Arizona arts while promoting deep understanding of racism and anti-racist centering on creative practices. 
Here at ASU, the Studio for Creativity, Place, and Equitable Communities leverages the power and possibilities of ASU as a new American university to integrate arts, culture, and design in community development to create healthy, equitable, more just communities where all people can thrive. The goal of this episode was to shed light on what the new American University is and what it means for students, faculty, and staff to exist within this prototype model for the American Public Research University. Feedback from stakeholders within the community reflect on how this model seems to have gotten stuck in its own reflection while not going beyond the model phase and into meaningful action. Though these innovative ideas are ambitious and seemingly wonderful ideas at a theoretical level, they are practically insubstantial if the rhetoric is not manifested in impactful and transformative ways. By speaking with our guests, we learn that the ideal university environment is where thoughtful, critical, and engaging discussion cultivates curiosity and the need to discover. It is a place where we learn to break away from institutional habits and conditionings to make room for meaningful and engaging thought. It seems as though our thoughts, our scholarships, and even the curriculum at every educational level is being placed under scrutiny and surveillance, which reminds us of a time of intellectual control that we do not want to repeat. So as universities reimagine their role in the 21st century, especially under a new American university model that strives for broad access to quality education and meaningful societal impact, it would be prudent for these universities to step up for their communities, especially when the histories, languages, identities, and cultures of their students are being threatened with political, social, and historical erasure. We have inadvertently mapped out a few ways in which this new American university model can be more effective in the 21st century, there is an abundance of opportunities to promote equitable, just, intersectional, and sustainable systems that deepen personal belonging and end legacies of exclusion and harm, while also pushing for innovative research. By taking advantage of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary frameworks and listening to the voices of students, faculty, and staff, universities like ASU can cultivate innovative approaches to form more than just an inclusive environment. They can tap into new technologies like e-textiles and video games to expand mediums of teaching and learning. They can be more vocal and get involved with activism that advocates for their communities of diverse scholarship, cultures, and identities. They can be proactive by adopting qualities of placemaking to create intentional, cooperative, engaging, and community-driven spaces. But most importantly, the new American University can provide all of these things and more by creating an environment that centralizes and invests in the students, for the students, and not for profit. Now, we recognize that the new American University is a considerable topic that can't be fully discussed within the scope of this podcast. So to ensure that our listeners leave with more than they came with, we've included a list of local and national resources in this episode's show notes. We hope that our podcast, along with the resources provided, have brought you new knowledge and insight that inspires you and your endeavors. And remember, regardless of who you are or what you do, regardless of what you study or practice, we are all part of something bigger than ourselves. So why not tap into that bigger piece? Utilize your studies, your practices, your trades, and unique perspectives to think across landscapes to create new ways of change. Get activated, get involved, and help create a better world for those to come. Thanks for listening to OK School Me. This podcast was produced in the Ed Plus Studios in Tempe, Arizona. It is executive produced by Kyra Trent with additional production and editorial support from Dr. Mako Fitzward, Dr. Selena Osuna, Jamal Brooks Hawkins, Amber Green, Hannah Grabowski, and Kyle McKinney. 
For more information about this podcast, please refer to the show notes and follow us on Twitter and YouTube at ASUSTL.